Well, good morning. It's good to be here, and it may seem a, a little hectic as we're trying to get things figured out as, as pastor's gone, and, and we do, uh, thank you for the volume there, we do, we do pray that uh, he and Bonnie and everybody else who's traveling make it safely there, and that this is not only a great time for our denomination as they figure out all the, the work that needs to be done, the issues that need to be handled, the praises that need to be celebrated, but also that this would be a time of relaxation for pastor as he sees his fa- gets a chance to see his family on this trip that he hasn't seen for uh, quite a little while. So just be in prayer for him and, and the others like uh, Pastor Young, and I know Steve's going to be traveling soon, Dr. Battle, uh, Elder Lupke over here. So just be in prayer for everybody as this is an incredibly busy season for, um, for all of us. And Stuart, you're also going. We don't want to leave him out either. So, so just be in prayer for everybody there. And um, Starting the first week of August actually marks Pastor's 50th year in ministry, I believe. So if we could just remember to keep him in prayer for that, this, this whole trip and vacation for him is, is well-deserved, I'm, I'm sure. But as we get into our text today, I would like to draw your attention to this idea of money and work and, and the projects that we have. But any project that we seek to do in this life requires some sort of funding. If you want to try your hand at painting, you have to go out and buy the canvas and the paints and the brushes and all of that. If you want to start a business, you have to be able to rent out or purchase a space to run it from, as well as supply the product that you want to distribute. In the past, you could go down to your local bank and apply for a personal or a business loan to get the money, but then you have to deal with interest. So right now, one of the ways that funding takes place in our modern world is we have these different organizations such as Kickstarter or GoFundMe or GiveSendGo. And as long as you're not a conservative trucker in Canada, likely you will get the money that is given to you. So these platforms allow a person to start a campaign where anybody can freely give to whatever it is that they're trying to do and fund it. And one of the projects that I've seen advertised recently on Facebook is for an animated movie about the character David from the Bible, and it's just called The David Movie. And the movie looks cute. The animation looks pretty high quality. It's an independent thing, but it looks kind of on the same level as you would expect for Disney or DreamWorks or any of those other animation studios. But... Here's the description of the David movie, and maybe something will stick out to you as it did for me. It says this, The story of David is epic. And that's why people say that's a real David versus Goliath matchup. It's the ultimate underdog story. An epic story deserves an epic movie, which is why we are making David, a feature-length animated film that combines the production quality and style of major animation studios with the inspiration and the faith of a Bible story. Now, the movie isn't out yet, and I'm not making any judgments of the movie if it will be good or bad or accurate, but I would like to just point out something from this description that is one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to the story of David. And that is when people claim that the story of David and Goliath is an underdog story. This morning we're going to begin a three, two, three-week study in, in 
the faith of David, as we continue our list of these Old Testament saints who we've been looking at in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to understand how the faith of David completely rejects this idea of an underdog story. The whole idea of an underdog story comes from a complete misreading or misunderstanding of the text. When we put our own thoughts and interpretations in the text rather than letting the text speak for itself. The story of David and Goliath is one of the most intense stories in the Bible. It's one of the greatest stories in the Bible other than the actual story of redemption and the the story of Christ, this could be considered the greatest story in the Bible. And every single person seems to know this story. People who grew up in church know this story. Ever since you could set foot in Sunday school, you've been coloring pictures of David and Goliath, and it's usually the battle, not the chopping of the head off. But we know the story. Even people who did not grow up in church know the story of David and Goliath. And a lot of people preach on this story, and a lot of sermons go something like this. We all have our giants in our lives, things we have to face that seem impossible to conquer, but by God's provision and faith, we are able to conquer our giants that stand in front of us. You may be small and your problems may seem big, but that didn't stop David from picking up the stone and just taking a chance. You're going to see a lot of that. That was one of the discouraging things. I like to listen to different sermons as I go about preparing for these, to hear different ideas, as well as reading the commentaries and all that. I didn't listen to a single sermon on David and Goliath. I couldn't get four minutes in to most of these sermons because they all kind of turned out like that. And this kind of interpretation comes when we make ourselves way more important than we really actually are. When we think of our lives, we tend to think of ourselves as the main character in our lives. And yes, we live our lives. Yes, we get to spend every waking moment with ourselves, whether we like it or not. But we are not the main characters of the universe, even in our own lives. Christ is the main character in our lives. Yes, God writes our story. And yes, we live out that story and we submit ourselves to the will of God or we disobey the will of God. But Christ is still the main character in the story. He will still judge. He will still either say, welcome into my kingdom or depart from me, I never knew you. It is still all about Christ. So when we come to the story of David and Goliath, we have to keep that in mind. We have to keep Christ at the center of this story. In the story of David and Goliath, we can often put ourselves in the place of the different characters. And here's the thing that I want to make very clear. You are not David, and your problems are not Goliath. David was a real person, and so was Goliath. In most tellings of the story, David is depicted as this little, tiny, scrawny boy. In the David movie that's coming out, if you watch the trailer, he, he looks like he's about... 8 to 12 years old, and that's usually where we find our description of David. But how does the Bible describe David? In 1 Samuel 16, 12, it says he was ruddy, that's a healthy red color, has beautiful eyes, and was handsome. In verse 7, we have it implied that he may not be the tallest guy in the world, which is great for people like me, but Samuel is instructed not to look on outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. But then we jump down to verse 18 of chapter 16, 
And it says this. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor and a man of war, prudent in speech and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. David is described right off the bat, before his battle with Goliath, before he's made king, before he's made famous in Israel, as a man of valor and a man of war. David was strong. He wasn't a scrawny little boy. Chances are he was probably around 17 or 18 years old when this took place. He was mighty. He already had a reputation of being a man of valor and a man of war. And we know that later, and as we read the text, that he was able to fight off lions and bears when they came after a sheep. This was not some little boy who just got a lucky shot. He was a warrior king, and he was chosen by God, one who would truly lead Israel and conquer over the enemies. David was also in service to Saul prior to his defeat of Goliath. In a lot of these movies, we see that Goliath comes onto the scene, Saul and all the Israelites are scared, and then David just kind of comes into the camp when Jesse sends him. I think of the, the VeggieTales description. That's usually when David and Saul first met. But David was in the service of Saul prior to the defeat of Goliath. In verse 21, David was Saul's armor bearer, and David would calm Saul's spirit when an evil spirit came and tormented him. The Bible tells us that Saul loved David. So now we come to our text of the day, 1 Samuel 17. This is where David shows his great faith in God. We are going through this list of faithful people, as I've mentioned, and the list in Hebrews chapter 11 doesn't give us a specific example of David's faith. In many of the other instances, it points out the time where they would be considered faith, where their faith is shown through, where they made it onto this list, but David is not given any kind of specific example. But David showed so much faith in his life he was a man after God's own heart. And that was a description not given by himself or by given others around him. God said, he is a man after my own heart. Yes, David had his shortcomings. David was sinful, as we all are. David even sinned greatly, as we will look at next week, to see how his faith played out in his great sin. But this week, we're focusing on the victory of David and his faith against the enemies of God of the God of Israel. So we have a lot of scripture to get through, so uh, get comfortable. I'm glad the AC is working now so we can actually uh, pay attention. So chapter 17, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes-Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. 
The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out... Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Our attention in this section is drawn immediately to the enemy. It's drawn immediately to Goliath. The author wants us to know what a threat this man was. And he is truly a giant. He is nine feet tall. He was a champion, which means that there was no other in the Philistine army who was like him. This kind of champion combat was common back in ancient days because it helped preserve life. If an army came into a land to conquer it, they, would be, they were seeking expansion. They were seeking a greater kingdom, and it's hard to have a great kingdom when all of your subjects are dead. And so they didn't want to wipe out all the people, usually because this was wiping out potential resources. So an army would often send their best soldiers against each other, And whoever died, the other army would then fight for the victor, and their nation would be under the control of the victorious army. If you're familiar with the movie Troy that came out many years ago, the opening scene actually gives a very good example of this, where you get to see this champion combat. But we have this nine-foot-tall champion whose spear weighed 14, or the spearhead weighed 14 and a half pounds, and his armor was 125 pounds. Goliath was incredibly strong. And to tell you the truth, when you consider his shield-bearer who went out before him, that guy was pretty jacked too. Because if you consider what Goliath's shield would have had to be, the shield-bearer was rather strong as well. So we just have intimidation all around. Even in the servant of Goliath is intimidating. The Philistines were also more advanced in their way as a nation when it came to warfare. They had actual weapons of war and armor that were beyond what Israel had. Israel probably didn't have quite the advancements that a lot of these other nations had. Some commentators suggest that when Israel went out to fight in some of these early days, they used basically improved farm tools to be able to fight in these battles. But one of the things that it makes very clear is that they were dismayed and greatly terrified. And what this speaks from Scripture to me, it says that they had forgotten how they got to where they are today. They had forgotten that God goes before them. They had forgotten that God had given them this land, that God has been with them, but they had forgotten their God. Saul, if we know him, was also a warrior king. After Saul was anointed, he went on to defeat Nash and the Ammonites in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. He was blessed by God, and the Holy Spirit was on him until God removed it because of his disobedience. And we'll talk about that a little bit more um, as we go through this. But the point here is that Saul was not a weak man. In a lot of ways, Saul and David were similar. David just remained faithful where Saul did not. But Saul 
witnessed how God worked in his life. The victories that Israel had because God went before them. Saul knew of the history of Israel and how God led the people out of Egypt, how God kept Israel through the wilderness, protecting them from the elements, and giving them victory over their enemies as they came against them over and over again. There was no reason that the Israelites should have been afraid. They were God's chosen people. They were the promised people. They were given this land, and they were promised deliverance, and yet they still cowered. David goes out by the command of his father to bring supplies to his brothers. And when he gets there, he seems a bit confused on why everybody was afraid. And David rebukes them. Look at verses 24 and 25 here of chapter 16. Or I'm sorry, chapter 17 here. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with, a great, with great riches and will give him a daughter and make his, faith, his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. David's response to this was not fear. David didn't join the Israelites in cowering, but David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David was more concerned with the profaning of God's name by the enemies than he was with the strength and might of Goliath. He wasn't intimidated by him. He insulted him. And he did what no one else was willing to do, and that was fight. There are certain times in our lives we as the people of God need to fight. It is so common today that churches refuse to step up and fight against the things that are making their way into the church and profaning the name of God. The enemies of God are hurling insults and blasphemies at the holy name of God, and the church usually stands by and does nothing. They cower. They step back and essentially say that the assault on the name of Christ is okay because it's the world and the world is going to do what the world is going to do. And the world hates God anyway. So So what business do we have to step up and stop to call the people to repentance? The church is more and more making allowances for things that profane the name of God and goes against his law that he has set forth. The acceptance and approval of gay marriage and transgenderism in the church. Ignoring or refusing to address the murder of babies in the womb. The church should be on the front lines of defending the truth. But instead, so often it cowers in the corner, letting the world dictate what it does and says. To try and win the approval, to try and be popular with people who hate God. But Christ has already gone before us. Christ has already been victorious. We don't need to be afraid. No weapon formed against us shall remain. So what keeps us from going out onto the battlefield? What keeps us from taking a stand for the word of the living and true God? David goes forth, and we're finally brought to our actual text of the reading today, starting in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained them. 
for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So Goliath begins this scene by insulting David. He does exactly what God, what God told Samuel not to do, and that was judged by the outward appearance. And then Goliath curses David by his own gods. In reality, this was all Goliath could do. This is what anyone in the world can do to us. This is the worst they can do. They can fling all the insults at Christ and his followers all they want. They can curse us by the name of Allah or by the practice of the New Age movement, but that is their only defense against God. The Bible even tells us that the, word, the world is not a threat to us. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. The worst anyone can do here on this earth is take our lives. But we know that by taking our earthly life, we gain our reward of eternal life with God. The victory is won. No one can take that from us. Nothing can take us out of the hand of God. And when we go into the world knowing this, and knowing that victory has been won, and truly believing that, our outlook changes. We have joy, we have peace, our faith is strengthened, and our assurance is made secure. David was not being cocky when he went and volunteered to go against Goliath. He wasn't being proud. He didn't think he was the best one for the job. David did nothing by his own strength, but acted completely and confidently on the faith that he had towards Yahweh. And that is demonstrated by the very next thing that David says, and it's the greatest battle cry in history, verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of angels, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When David says that he comes in the name of the Lord, he is to say that he now represents the Lord of hosts and the God of the heavenly armies. By saying this, the reader understands that he is now the vessel by which God has accom will accomplish his purpose and deliverance for the Israelites at that moment. And as David continues this battle cry, he gets bolder and bolder, not because he's more in tune with his own strength or his confidence is being built up, but because he recognizes that his strength comes from God. His boldness is in the power and the victory that God has already won. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. It's not, this day my skill as a slingsman or a shepherd will deliver you into my hand, but the Lord will deliver you into my hand. It's one thing for David to go up to Saul and say, I'll take on the Philistine, I'll kill Goliath. 
It's a whole other thing to actually go out onto the battlefield and face the man who has struck fear into an entire army. Imagine that for just a moment. The Israelites were willing to go to war with the Philistines, an entire army of people. They were there on the battlefield already. They were there ready to fight. But one man, one man, a giant, struck fear into an entire nation and paralyzed them. If you remember, this was one of the things that caused God to actually delay the entering into the promised land, the report of the 12 spies. If you look at Numbers chapter 13, verses 32, it says this. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out at Spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so as so we seemed to them. Ultimately, Israel let what they could not see, or what they could see, get in the way of trusting God's promise to give them this land. But as we've been reminded over and over again through this series, as we look at Hebrews, it says the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. Goliath is not your problems in life. Goliath is not a cancer diagnosis or the getting laid off of your job or anything else that may come against you. But the confidence in the promise, the promises of God that David displayed here We can take that. The faith that he put on display to those around him absolutely serves as an example to how we are to live our lives, the kind of faith that we are to proclaim, to be able to stand boldly, not by our own strength, but on Christ who has already promised to deliver those who belong to him and has already paid the price. David's victory over Goliath made him famous, but this is not why he did what he did. He didn't want to be famous. That's not why he went into battle. He didn't care about the attention brought on to him. He cared about the name of Yahweh being glorified and honored and known through the entire land. He did all to the glory of God. And it says this, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Here's the thing. The Philistines needed to know that there was a God in Israel. They needed to know there was no chance for them. The enemies of God need to know that there is no chance for them. Satan knows that there is no chance for him. Satan has been defeated. That God fights for his people. That God preserves his people and that his name shall not be mocked. But Israel also needed to know that their God was with them. Verse 47, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The battle was won before David even set foot on the battlefield. How often do we need to be reminded of God's victory over our sin? How often do we need to know that there is a God and he is with us? He's not far away, but he has drawn near to us in Christ. Not just in Israel, but this entire world. And it's not just any God 
but Yahweh, the true and living God. Faith is not just believing in a God and thinking we're okay, but knowing the true and the living God, knowing that all his promises are yes and amen. The Israelites expected that the battle would be won by sword and spear, but God uses other means. The Jews expected and still do expect the Messiah to come as a warrior and a conqueror. And we mentioned that in Sunday school this morning, that Christ will come again as a warrior and conqueror. But when he came the first time, yes, he won a victory. Yes, he won a battle. But he came to bring peace. He came to save us from our sins. And that's not what the Jews expected. Continuing on in verse 48. When the Philistines arose and came and draw near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Notice that when it came to Goliath, when he came at David, David didn't run and get his distance to try and take better aim to get an upper hand on him. But he ran straight into battle. David didn't just get a lucky shot here. David wasn't just a person who was brave enough to step up to complete this task. David was the only one who could have done this. He is a picture of Christ. We need to continue to put that in our minds. He is the picture of Christ. Just as Christ was the only one who could have accomplished the task set before him, David was the only one here who could accomplish this task that was set before him. He was chosen and set apart for this. There was no losing. There was no chance that David was going to be struck down in this moment. There was only victory. David was not the underdog. Goliath was. Goliath wasn't just going up against David, a scrawny, handsome young man, but he was going up against God himself. If there was any situation that was hopeless in victory, it was the Philistine situation. And David knew this. His faith was strong. He didn't go into the situation with any other thought other than victory because victory was achieved. This was how it was going to be. God used David. God doesn't need us, but God uses us and he loves us. A lot of people struggle with this idea. Does God do it or do we do it? And the answer is yes. God accomplishes his will many times through us and we must be willing and faithful If we look back at the heroes of the faith and we see uh, Abraham, God called, Abraham answered. Moses, God called, Abraham answered. Gideon, God called, Abraham, or Gideon answered. And now David. Over and over again, faith is put on display by submitting to God's call in our lives and being obedient to what he calls us to do. We believe in predestination and election, one of the critiques that we get as Calvinists is that we don't believe in evangelism because if God was the one who draws us and calls us, then God's going to draw and call. And if no one can resist him, then let's just let God do his own work and we can sit back and not have to do any work ourselves. But Spurgeon says this, The lazy bones of our Orthodox churches cry, God will do his own work. And then they look out to the softest pillows they can find and put it under their heads and say, the eternal purposes which will be carried out, God will be glorified. That is all very fine talk, 
but it can be used with the most mischievous design. You can make opium out of it, which will lull you into a deep and dreadful slumber and prevent your being of any kind or use at all. We may not be called to do great things like slay a giant in the sense of being famous or having the loudest voice or best influence, but we are called into battle. We are called to be faithful and to proclaim the name of Christ to the world. And yes, God's purpose will be accomplished. But we should not have the attitude as someone else will do it. Someone else has done it. Someone else has achieved the victory, and that was Christ. The Israelites had victory in battle because of one man. So in the same way, we also have victory in battle because of one man. David's faith was strong. David, the godliest man who ever lived aside from Christ, a man that God declared was a man after his own heart, looked forward to the promises of God by faith, and so should we. We are not David, but we should strive for that kind of faith. Pray to be made holy day by day, be sanctified by the Spirit, a faith that is strong and a faith that serves as a witness to the weak and scared world that Christ is the light and the Savior of mankind. Repent and believe in him and be saved, for there is no other Savior. And then we get to this final bit of the story, which is this outstanding, outstanding climax. And it says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David that David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. We should be able to look back, not just at the biblical stories that serve as a God-inspired witness of true stories and events that have happened to help us strengthen our faith, but look back on your own lives and where God has been faithful, where God has worked in your lives and continue to rest on the promises of God that he will He who began a good work in you will see it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. But we are in a battlefield today, church. We are in a battlefield, and we are called to battle. Let us have faith. Let us answer to God, yes, we will go, and we will demonstrate to the world that there is only one God, and his name will not be profaned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are weak. We all sin. We all shall fall short of your glorious standards. Father, strengthen our faith. Make us holy. Conform us to the image of your Son. Father, we thank you for these great testimonies of faith that we see. We thank you that we have these examples to look to. Now be glorified as we continue to worship you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.